Hello and welcome. This is the Book of Acts by Word Online. So we're continuing in series six, having seen the extraordinary work that Paul did in the city of Ephesus. We now find that he's on the move uh, with various objectives in mind. He's heading from Asia Minor, Ephesus, on the western coast of modern-day Turkey, now to Macedonia and Greece, across the Aegean Sea. Then he'll be going to Jerusalem. And as we've heard in previous episodes mentioned in Acts 19, verse 20, his real goal is to head to Rome. And this is why series six is entitled uh, The Gospel to Rome. But in this particular episode, we're going to find out about his work in Macedonia and Greece, what he's doing there, the things that happen there, and a particularly surprising incident that occurs on the journey. Let's read verses 1 to 6 of Acts chapter 20. And this is speaking of uh, his Paul leaving Ephesus after the uproar in the amphitheatre. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. Paul decided that it was time to leave Ephesus, having spent between two and three years there, and his work had done, the church had been uh, established, and he moved forward uh, to follow some colleagues he'd already sent to Macedonia in advance, and he went to join them, as described at the beginning of this passage. And we find that as he's in Macedonia, he traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. We know of three churches that he'd established there, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. There were probably others that are either not mentioned in the, in the narrative of the book of Acts or have been planted by those churches in the nearby communities since Paul had been there. But we know he would have visited those three cities. And because we know what happened when he was there before, we know that his time in those three cities was very short. He left Philippi having been imprisoned and beaten, and he left rather hastily there. He left Thessalonica 
after some difficulties there with the Jewish community. And he left Berea when the Thess Thessalonian Jews came over to stir up trouble in Berea and he left there very hastily. So he's only spent a very short period of time in these three major centers. And now he returns for the first time, having had painful partings with these new Christians in each of those three cases. He'd much prefer to have spent much more time with them, but he simply couldn't do it because the fierce opposition was threatening his mission and indeed his own liberty and his life. So he comes back and he does much to strengthen them through many words of encouragement to the people. Now this reminds us of what Paul did in his first missionary journey which was in Asia Minor. And what he did there was having planted uh, a few churches in cities in a particular region, he then went back to each one uh, soon after he planted the church and he strengthened the church. And this is described in a parallel passage in Acts 14 verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith is how Luke describes it in that particular instance, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. So probably something similar was happening here in Macedonia. Teaching, preparing them for opposition, encouraging them in their faith, and probably appointing leaders. And New Testament leaders are generally called elders or sometimes shepherds or overseers and Paul made every effort to appoint eldership teams in the churches that he had planted and so he probably did that at this point in these three churches in Macedonia and any other churches in the region that are not named here. Leadership is important to hold new Christian communities together in stability and security. He encouraged them. Then he travelled south to what is described here as Greece, the southern part of the modern country of Greece. And we know from the previous account that he planted two communities, two churches there, one in Athens. We don't know very much about the community itself, but we know he preached the gospel there. We know there were a few converts. And we also know that he spent 18 months in Corinth uh, planting and establishing a church there where there are many people who believed and were baptized. So these three months he probably spent mostly in Corinth. And then <clears throat> it's interesting to think about Paul's team. First of all, we notice in verse 5, that the word us is used, implying that here Luke is in Paul's team. And if you've been going through this teaching with me through the book of Acts, you'll know that there are several occasions during the book of Acts when Luke appears to be an eyewitness on the team. And at that point, uh, he describes the team as we and us rather than they and them. And so Luke appears to be here with them. And also there's quite a big team because we know that uh, Paul had already sent Timothy and others 
forward to Macedonia before he went. But here in verse 4, we find a whole other series of team members mentioned from all sorts of different places. So Peter, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, as well as Timothy. He's gathered quite a large team. And this is partly because he is taking up and offering a collection of money from the churches. And these people, these men, are probably going to be helping keeping this money secure and providing accountability that none of the money is misspent or wasted or lost on the way but gets to its eventual destination in the city of Jerusalem. So there's quite a strong team here and he's traveling around. And when he's in Corinth and Athens, he then wants to move back from there and head towards Jerusalem. And the most obvious way to do that is to go by sea. It's by far the quickest way. Perhaps it might take a week or two by sea, depending on the tides and which ship you take and how many stops there are on the journey, to get by sea from Greece across the Aegean Sea, round the south of modern-day Turkey, past Cyprus, and then down the Syrian coast, down to a port like Caesarea, and uh, then take the journey to Jerusalem or other places in Judea. Maybe that would take a, a fortnight to do that journey if uh, winds were good and circumstances were good. But it's interesting here that <coughs> he decided in verse 3, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So... <coughs> It appears he decided to go by road and not by sea because he feared a plot. Now, this seems a very strange decision because if he goes by road, that period of time that might be one or two weeks would become several months. It's going to take a very long time to go by road. All those hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, about 400 kilometers north, then right across and then all the way down through Asia Minor towards uh, the province of Judea in Israel. So what's going on here? He feared a plot. It probably means that what he feared was that the plot was that some Jews were going to get on board the ship that he was going to take. Maybe someone tipped him off. We don't know all the details. We can't prove this. But if they were going to get on board the ship, then of course they could assassinate him or poison him or try and push him over the edge of the ship or something like that. In other words, it was an enclosed space where he was vulnerable. And he didn't want to take the risk. So he took a very, very long detour, which would cost him literally months of time. So there must have been some serious evidence that something was afoot. But we do know from Paul's writings in uh, the letters to the Corinthians how seriously the Jewish opponents tried to 
get rid of Poole on many different occasions, make it difficult. And this appears to include even an assassination or kidnapping plot. So he went by land. And they travelled all the way through Macedonia and then took the short journey by sea over to a city, a city port called Troas. And we've encountered Troas before in our story. Because before Paul had ever got to Europe, to Greece and Macedonia, he was in Troas. He was in that very same place when he had a vision in the middle of the night when a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And now we've come full circle and he's back in the same place that he used as the basis for going on that missionary trip in the first place. But now he's heading in the opposite direction. He's heading south. He's heading east. He's heading ultimately for the city of Jerusalem. But here we have just a fascinating little story. Luke is present as an eyewitness. And we see here in this little story just an insight into Paul's life and the life of his traveling companions and the things that happened in his life that is touching, poignant, and fascinating for us to read. So let's read this story, verses 7 to 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms round him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. What an amazing story. The first day of the week is when they met, and it appears that some kind of a church community existed in Troas, though we have no mention of it earlier on in the narrative. But Paul had been there before, as I mentioned, so he probably preached the gospel there. And so his traveling group met with the local believers, probably just a handful of people, on the first day day of the week. Now the first day of the week is a term for Sunday and it's used on a number of occasions. For example in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, on the first day of every week each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. The first day of the week, the Sunday, became the natural day of gathering for the church because it was associated with the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, uh, John in the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 describes it as the Lord's Day. 
the day of resurrection. But we shouldn't imagine that they met at some convenient time in the morning uh, or the afternoon or, or the early evening. Because they were working and they weren't free. It wasn't an official day of rest. It wasn't recognized by the Roman authorities. So if they met on the first day of the week, we, they would generally meet very early in the morning before working hours or late at night, as in this instance. They're meeting late at night. And they broke bread. This, of course, means they were sharing communion. Breaking bread in the book of Acts describes both communion, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of Holy Communion on the one hand, and also a social meal on the other. It's referred to at the very beginning in the Jerusalem church. Acts 2 verse 42 speaks of breaking bread. So the communion was going to be shared, the Lord's Supper, a time of consolidation, of fellowship, of encouragement, of remembrance of the atonement of, atonement of Jesus, the celebration of the new covenant which they had entered into, and so they were going to break bread. But as Paul was talking, this young man Eutychus falls asleep. He appears, he's on the third story, the first story in those uh, buildings in, in that context means the ground floor. So the second and then the third is the second floor above the ground floor. And we know from archaeology that uh, uh, Roman architecture uh, and design of housing meant that in urban areas, most people lived in what we would call apartment blocks, very, very basic, multi-storied housing. This was the housing for the poorer people. And so it's not uncommon to have people living on the third or even the fourth story. And so it's not surprising that this is the meeting room for this particular gathering in Troas of Paul and his group and the local believers. But poor Eutychus had been working all day. He was a young man. He may have been a slave. He may have been a teenager, but he's been working all day probably uh, in one way or another. And he sat on the windowsill, fell asleep, and fell to the floor. So he would have fallen, fallen some considerable distance from his windowsill right the way down to the ground outside. It was a dramatic moment. Paul had the ability to talk on and on, but if you imagine him preaching a single sermon, that would be a misrepresentation of what Paul was doing. He would be telling stories, answering questions, entering into dialogue, engaging in fellowship, having prophetic words for people, talking about his mission and encouraging them to participate in what he was doing in heading to Jerusalem. Paul was a great conversationalist and these conversations could go on and on. And they were having that kind of conversation when suddenly Eutychus fell. And Paul rushed down the stairs and laid on this boy saying he's alive, don't be alarmed. And amazingly, he got up unharmed and everyone was relieved. Luke specifically says that he was dead. So this wasn't 
concussion. This wasn't just him being dazed or confused or injured. Luke describes him as having had a disastrous accident and actually being lifeless when he was discovered a few minutes later when they'd rushed down the stairs. Lifeless. So Luke describes this story as if it's actually a resurrection that's taken place. Somebody who's dead but is now alive again. And this is in the pattern of events that we have in the New Testament where there are several similar accounts which I'm going to refer to in just a moment. But interestingly enough, this didn't stop Paul talking. He just carried on for several more hours. I think Paul loved to have these moments of warm fellowship and mutual encouragement because he had such a hard time traveling, preaching, facing opposition. And this was a moment of affection and togetherness in the church and of relaxation for Paul. And I think when Paul relaxed, he talked. I think that was his personality. Some people do that, don't they? And people wanted to hear what he said because his story was so amazing. And it was very hard for people to get news of what was happening around the churches because uh, it, communication was so difficult in those days. There were no newspapers, there was no social media, there was no internet. There was no postal system of any significance that could be used by ordinary people. And so Paul was telling story after story and answering questions. That's what he loved to do. That's what the Jewish system of education was all about, telling stories and concepts and then answering questions in detail. And Paul did that right the way through to the morning. And then he left, heading step by step towards Jerusalem. And if I'd been a church member in Troas, that would be a night I would never forget for the rest of my life. What a story. What an encounter with Paul. So what can we learn from a passage like this? Well, I think it's a very touching and meaningful story, and I just think it's interesting that Luke includes it because it doesn't carry a lot of strategic purpose for the grand mission of Paul. It's just a human story of him interacting with fellow believers and responding with faith in every particular circumstance. But here are some things uh, that I think we can reflect on and learn about from this passage. First of all, about the status of Sunday. Sunday's become a very special day and sometimes even a sacred day for Christians. But we need to remember that in the early church, Sunday had no special status in the Roman Empire until the fourth century, about 300 years after the time of Jesus, before the Roman Emperor Constantine had become a Christian and changed the law so that Sunday was a day of rest. We're so used to this idea in many parts of the world, we think it's always been there, but it wasn't there in the days of the early church. And in fact, the early church knew that we can worship and gather the church community on any day of the week. We're not committed to a particular day because of a divine command. Now, the Jews were committed to a particular day, the Sabbath, because of a divine command 
in the Ten Commandments. But that commandment is never applied to the church. And there's no attempt by Paul or anyone else to enforce attendance on any particular day or make it a day of rest. In the world today, Christians in Jewish communities will often gather on the Jewish uh, Sabbath, the Saturday. Christians operating in Islamic communities will characteristically have their church meetings on Friday, the Islamic Holy Day. Christi uh, Christians in Western communities and other parts of the world influenced by Christianity will generally gather on Sunday because that day has been set aside by culture and legislation as a day of rest. But actually there's no law about it. And we shouldn't elevate any day to have any sacred status. The second reflection I learned from here is about the power of encouragement. There's a lot of em emphasis here on encouragement. Paul encouraged all the churches he'd previously visited. Words of encouragement have a tremendous power to strengthen Christian community. And his discussion with the Christians at Troas must have included lots of encouragement to them as he spent many hours talking to them through the night on that famous night that's described in the second half of our passage. Encouragement is really important. Encouragement means coming alongside other people, helping them with positive words. Now these words can be the words of scripture, they can be our own words of encouragement, or they can be the words of prophecy from God himself. Now, Paul was very committed to words of encouragement that were just what we think is going to be most helpful to other people. And he emphasizes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, for example. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, becoming uh, becoming one in spirit and one in mind. Encouragement's really important. It builds up the church. And even the Holy Spirit is described as an encourager or as a comforter or as an advocate in John 14, verse 16, or, or our helper. The Holy Spirit comes to strengthen us through words that come from God. So my second application here is to think about the power of encouragement. And my final point will be just to talk about physical resurrections in the New Testament. I'm distinguishing these from the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus was a once for all permanent reality. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his body was transformed in such a way that there was no decline or future death possible in the body of Jesus. But what I'm talking about is the resurrections where, we, where people who have died come, physically come back to life for the lifespan of their life as a sign of God's powerful activity and the authority of Jesus Christ. There are three resurrections of this type recorded in Jesus' ministry. The widow of Nain's son, who was uh, being just about to be buried, going to his funeral 
lying down in a funeral bier in Luke 7, and he was raised from the dead. Jairus's daughter, as described in Luke 8. Lazarus, as described in John chapter 11. There are three recorded resurrections performed by Jesus. But there's also a resurrection performed by Peter in Acts 8 of Dorcas, otherwise known as Tabitha, who had died, a lady who had died and was raised again from the dead miraculously. And to those four resurrections, we can add this fifth one, the resurrection of Eutychus through the prayers and faith of Paul. And all these are signs of God's supreme power even over life and death. So thank you for joining me for this episode where we look into Paul's life in a little bit more of a personal sense, a personal meeting with friends, a powerful church meeting, sharing communion and a miracle in the midst of it. Lots of encouragement and then a parting of the ways as Paul continues with much determination on his journey. He must get to Jerusalem. He has financial gifts to give. And then from there, he must get to Rome to witness in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And we'll continue to follow him on this exciting but extremely risky journey that he's now undertaking. So join us again. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.